0: Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work.
1: Get out! Come on!
0: We don't know where the moon came from.
2: Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible.
0: We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Huh. Hmm. Huh. Huh. What? Oh my goodness. Huh. Oh my god. What is Wow. Oh my god.
1: Radio Lab. Whoa. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. And this is the BioEats World Journal Club, where we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. And today, we're talking about living materials and how to engineer them. What exactly do you mean by living materials, Lauren? So there are two main classes of living material. Materials that are made of living cells, for example, our skin or a plant leaf is a living material. And then materials that are produced by cells but are not themselves alive, like hair or spider silk. Today I'm joined by Tom Ellis of Imperial University and BioDeal Team partner Judy Savitskaya, our in-house synthetic biology expert, to discuss how and why we want to create engineered living materials. So part of the promise of synthetic biology is to be able to engineer things like spider
2: silk, which is five times stronger than steel, by, for example, programming bacteria
1: to produce it at scale. But what we're talking about today is pushing that idea even farther. So imagine the spider silk rope with cells interwoven into it that could be programmed to say, disintegrate the rope in certain conditions. It's using biological building blocks to create something fundamentally new. And the work that we discuss in this episode is creating a sort of prototype of an engineered living material that can be iterated on and programmed with a vast array of different functions. We kick off today's conversation with Judy comparing man-made materials to biologic materials. An interesting
2: area where living materials are being mimicked by man-made materials is photovoltaics. So you have plants that use the energy from sunlight, And the way that we do photovoltaics, the process is different, but the idea of using the energy of sunlight is pretty similar. What is the advantage of having the living version versus the synthetic version? Is there a reason why we would prefer one or the other from sort of first principles?
0: It's a good question because there's a lot of selling of anything bio as it's greener. I don't think necessarily a lot of that holds weight when you really look into it. Obviously, photovoltaics do have a big environmental impact. And so it would be better if we can work out a way to somehow do photosynthesis to create our energy in a way that doesn't have to mine for rare earth metals, for example. So there's work in that space. But I think really in the engineered living material space, we're more interested in looking at all those diverse, cool materials that biology can give us and saying well they're great but let's come up with some that biology haven't given us you gave an example of a non-biological material that's trying to do what a biological material can do we're more interested in kind of the other way around can we be inspired by the non-biology materials and non-biology things we do in life and seeing if we can get biology to be able to provide materials that can do those kind of things I think it's really a bit more motivated about like out there possibilities of what could be achieved if you have living programmable cells making the materials and as part of the materials.
2: Take the biology and make it better.
0: Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of early on when I chatted with Suzanne Lee, who had done speculative design about growing bacterial cellulose to make a replacement for leather. But she said she learned from that experience. You know, replacing leather is one thing, but there's an entire infrastructure for making and selling leather. Even if you were to be able to get to a similar price point to leather for your bacteria-based leather, you still aren't going to disrupt that market. What you really need and what biology should be really going for is putting in new functionalities into the material, you know, like leather that does stuff that normal leather can't do.
1: Mood responsive colors. It's not just about replicating existing products. It's about building beyond those existing products and creating new functions and new materials, improved materials, not just bio-produced materials. Yeah,
0: this is the universal thing about just new technologies and how they can disrupt markets. It's nothing specific about bio, but bio is in a good place to be something that can, you know, upend the market by adding in strange and exotic and interesting new functionalities that consumers and users would like to have.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a kind of more sophisticated way of thinking about what we're doing with synthetic biology and these engineered living materials, that it's not replication, it's expansion. So as a synthetic biologist aiming to create these Engineered living materials. What are some of the building blocks that you play with? You know, what is kind of the basic setup that you then iterate on?
0: So, we do work with bacteria and yeast cells. And I think doing that from microbes is great because you can build from the bottom up because they don't make that many materials naturally. I think if we were to try to modify plants to make materials that we want, it becomes very difficult because. Each plant has to make a whole set of different materials just to survive through a life cycle. So if you want to do this in a way where you have full control, it's better to start from the bottom up and then add on this functionality that we can do with synthetic biology. So that's one of our tools in our toolbox. And then another tool is being able to design proteins and modify proteins, even with new amino acids, to be able to make something. So that's really good for advanced stuff. But the problem is, they're produced in really tiny amounts by biotech and even by nature. So you can flip it the other way, which is what we did in this research paper, which is instead look at materials that can be cheaply produced at very large scale, which maybe don't have these fancy properties, but they provide a nice base to work on. So another tool is carbohydrate production. Cellulose and starch, I would say, are the obvious. Carbohydrate polymers. I joke, but we see bacterial cellulose as our blank piece of paper because it's kind of a very straightforward, predictable material.
1: Yeah. I mean, paper is made of cellulose. And that's a way to kind of visualize what cellulose looks like. It's white, it's kind of produced in these long sheets. It's got that kind of almost like what you would expect wet paper to feel like.
0: Yeah. And actually, bacterial cellulose is more a blank sheet of paper than paper, because paper contains other impurities, whereas bacteria that overproduce bacterial cellulose tend to only produce very long, pure chains of cellulose. And so that means you actually get much tougher cellulose from bacterial cellulose, because you've got these much longer threads that are all interweaving with one another all throughout the material, and it's sort of connected together at a cell-to-cell level.
2: So is it harder to rip the bacterial cellulose than it is to rip a leaf?
0: Yeah, definitely. And on top of that, it's biocompatible. So bacterial cellulose, when sterile, can be implanted into people. It doesn't cause any reactions. It doesn't break down inside us because we don't contain cellulases. Whereas materials made from proteins, if they're implanted within you, they will get degraded reasonably quickly because our bodies are full of enzymes that break down proteins. So there is a big market out there already in in This hydrated form of bacterial cellulose, which is very flexible, but very tough and hard to break. And when it's properly sterilized, it can then be used in surgical procedures implanted into people to hold stuff together.
2: That's amazing.
1: Okay, so now that we have that background on what living materials are, what we want to do with engineered living materials, which is to add this additional layer of functionality to them and what the basic building blocks are. Let's get into the methods and results of your study. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about your paper was that it was inspired by kombucha tea, which is a ridiculously popular drink here in California right now. So, how did this fermented beverage inspire your engineered living materials, your ELM design?
0: So, early on when our team were looking at bacterial cellulose for that project, One of them just said, we know that this bacteria originally comes from kombucha fermentation. So let's isolate this bacteria ourselves from kombucha. So they bought a kit to homemade kombucha, isolated the bacteria out of it and grew it. And that's the one our research group works with. And we'd forgotten about the rest of kombucha. We just wanted to do bacterial cellulose work. After we published that work, we were then contacted by Z.J. Tang and Tim Liu's group at MIT saying, well, we saw your kombucha thing. We've been looking at kombucha as well. And there's this opportunity to get some small amount of money for a collaborative project between groups at MIT and Imperial. Should we come up with something together? And so in some discussions, ZJ had said he'd gone out and bought a few kombuchas. and He was doing some analysis of what microbes are in there. And he kept finding the bacteria, obviously similar to ours, but he was also finding yeast was present as well. And so that got us talking. So we went back to the idea of this mixed community, and particularly the famous acronym from Kombucha, which is SCOBY, the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. So we've been talking about SCOBYs for ages, but we've never really bothered to think about how we could make a synthetic one. So kombucha,
1: or I say kombucha, you say kombucha, probably both wrong. Who knows? Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a drink that's tea and sugar fermented by the SCOBY to make this kind of vinegar-like drink. And you knew that the bacteria in the SCOBY produces the cellulose that you could use as your blank paper. And you knew that there's yeast in there too. And so you wanted to functionalize and create a living material based off of that naturally occurring community. So what are some of the advantages of co-culturing this system together? Like, why do you want to have the bacteria and the yeast as opposed to, say, forcing the yeast to express a lot of the cellulase or learning how to genetically manipulate the cellulase-producing bacteria?
0: So we want the yeast there within the material, alive at the time That the material is being produced, and then all through the layers, so that we can instruct the yeast as the material is being made to change the material or to add certain properties to it as it's being manufactured. In the research paper, we brand the yeast cells as the specialist cells. Like in our own skin, it's not just the same cell all the time, there's a specialist cell that does a specific task dotted around every now and again. And there'll be a hair cell, there'll be a sweat gland, there'll be a nerve cell. And so inspired by that, we can see all of these producer cells doing stuff, and then every now and again, a specialist cell that does something like secretes out a protein or responds to a chemical or breaks the material down and weakens it in that local area. We do think that this could be achieved by engineering the bacteria, but not necessarily our specialist cells,
2: Yeah. Because so much of biology is stochastic, it's hard to program in how you expect things to develop over time, which in a way is how you expect things to develop over space when you're talking about making a
1: material.
0: That's a good way to put it.
1: So let's go through some of the ways that you program different functions into your kombucha inspired ELMs. The first listed in the article is for enzyme secretion. So how did you achieve that? And what kind of applications could this
0: be used for? So this was reasonably straightforward because there's a huge body of work of getting yeast to secrete proteins for various tasks. And just the simplicity of this synthetic SCOBY system we have is that you can just kind of more or less pick a yeast from your collection of engineered yeast, or you could phone up your friend who engineered yeast to do something and say, send that over to me. And within a week, you've grown it into a material So we could just sort of swap out in our synthetic biology system the protein that's getting secreted. So we put instead an enzyme that breaks down an antibiotic and swap the tag so that the protein now binds cellulose really tightly. It worked really well in that the material would grow it, take it. You could keep it. You didn't even need to hydrate it. You could let it dry out on the bench. And it would maintain that enzymatic property for quite a while if it's surrounded by cellulose it sort of acts as like the packaging on your amazon delivery range (laughs) and bacterial cellulose and other biological materials has been used for water filtration to remove pollutants and so if you dry out the cellulose in the right way it goes down to something a bit like a piece of filter paper which can be used quite nicely within a water filtration stack so we've been able then in this case to sort of achieve a good water filter, but now with specific enzymes within that material that will target certain pollutants like an antibiotic in wastewater and help break it down as it goes through the filtration process.
1: That's a perfect example of how you functionalize or how you're adding to a material. So you're not just creating a filter from a biologic, you're adding an additional function to it that it didn't have before. And that would be really difficult to do through like, traditional manufacturing
0: yeah so you know there's lots of uses for if you can program biology to bind and break stuff and then have that embedded within a material we could for example functionalize the cellulose and then make a face mask out so secrete the binding protein from the human ace2 receptor and have that all over the cellulose so that as the virus is sort of being breathed in through your mask, it has high affinity to bind onto the cellulose and stick there. And You could throw it away at the end of the day. So it would not only be filtrating, but it would also be capturing virus at the same time as well.
2: And that's the other reason the drying component of the paper is really important. So almost every experiment you did, you also then dried the material and showed that it was still functional, which is not a common method that we see in science papers, but it's obviously extremely important here because that material needs to be useful
1: for some lifetime. Yeah. The range of applications you can use it for is so much more if the material is dry or if it can be both dry and wet versus just wet. Like the face mask example is perfect. Nobody wants to wear a wet face mask. That sounds terrible. (laughs) So one of the key modification or functionalization of the ELMs discussed in the article is how to achieve spatial patternings in this material. So what is the importance of patterning and then how did you encode these?
0: So it's important to look at biological materials that we use in everyday life, like wood, because each different wood that we use in furniture or whatever, it weighs and it feels very different. And the majority of that is based on the patterning, the spatial arrangements of the cells, how much air bubbles they had within the cells and how sparse they were. That's the difference between a light wood and a dense wood. So you can really see from biology that the patterning on the micro and the macro scale really is a key part of what the material property would be. And so if you make a plastic, you don't get any of that. You have to come up with some very fancy methods to get that kind of micro or macro scale patterning that then holds the material in a different way. So this is really where biology should excel, is being able to direct a pattern and then have the material have different strengths based on that pattern. And so that pattern then becomes part of the material problems. So how would we achieve that? So people have engineered ways that cells can turn genes on and off in response to light. And so that's the kind of thing we've, done in this research paper is come up with the way that you can precisely turn on gene expression in certain regions of the material as it's growing by shining light into those areas with a template. And so some of the things we've thought about for that, you'll see in the paper, we have the system where enzymes are released from the yeast cells that then break down and weaken the area around the yeast cells. And so we wanted to, but never quite got there in this research link light with the weakening so that you could shine a light pattern of lines and then if you left it out to dry as it dehydrated it might do that kind of like spontaneous origami where it would fold up into a 3D structure based on the weak line we've never quite got there but I think that's doable that's one for the future still and that's the beginning of being able to really make some exciting material property differences.
1: Yeah, the ability to pattern and to encode patterns allows you to have just a range of possibilities kind of in place that you can then turn on and off so that you've got kind of all these pieces playing together and creating really sophisticated, multifunctional materials.
2: So I guess that begs the question of where do you see the commercialization opportunities for something like this kind of material?
0: I would say the nearest uses for these things are kind of being able to grow customizable filters and materials that can fit into existing systems where you need to detect molecules, pathogens, pollutants, and then either respond or record that information for a reason or break down or change that molecule in some way. I think that's probably the real entry point for a lot of these engineered living materials. It's that sort of industrial processing. I see them as something for healthcare, smart materials like smart bandages or implants, which then can sense and respond. ELMs, I think, have a big future in fashion and consumer materials. We have had ongoing collaborations, and there's a startup company now that's kind of related to some of our work called Modern Synthesis. And so they've been looking at bacterial cellulose and the possibility of engineering things like color built into the genetics. So you can have the entire fabrication process of the material and then the dyeing process as well is built into the genetic code of the microbe. And so all that process happens at the same time, making it potentially much less impact on the environment if it's all done naturally.
2: Yeah, not to mention it's all one process. So it's fewer steps, therefore probably cheaper.
0: And so all of that will come under like consumer and fashion in that area, which I think is really an area that synthetic biology needs to have more product in because that's the ultimate validation for genetic engineering, and the synthetic biology approach is that it produces things that people really want to have because they're better and cooler than stuff that other people have had. So
1: what do you think the big hurdles are for ELMs, kind of both scientifically and operationalizing them when you're thinking about taking them from the lab into the real world?
0: So it depends on the ELM. So the big hurdle for most of these materials is the yield. Like, you know, the stuff you will see in a research paper of a protein-based adhesive secreted from E. coli, that will be produced in tiny, tiny amounts. You have to Brew up a lot, a lot of cells to get a pure amount of protein to work with. So they all have to deal with scale. The the stuff we've been making with the bacterial cellulose, we don't have that scale problem. So I would say for us on the cellulose-based living material side of things, the big challenge is how to maintain the properties we see in the lab, in the living form for a long period of time, either with still living or dormant cells within that can then Do their tasks like sensing or even just if you just want it inert and dead but still have the enzymatic activity how to do that sterilization to keep the enzymatic activity good and to keep the material still good and firm so we've done research in this space you can treat with oils and waxes as it's drying but then you have to think about what is that going to affect things like the proteins or enzymes that you put within the material as well so This is all a challenge for our group because we are like experts in molecular biology and DNA encoding. And now this is pushing us into territories of like materials and chemistry. And that makes us uncomfortable. But we hope other smart (laughs) people will solve those problems of particularly, you know, how to keep it hydrated over a long period of time so that dormant cells can be there. And when needed, they can come back alive and do sensing.
1: Contact the Ellis Lab about collaborations. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd like to just take a step back and think about kind of the bigger vision and how you see ELMs as part of like our future products and our future environment. Where do you see ELMs going in the future?
0: I think like out there possibilities of being able to grow smart materials from just some sugary water plus some bacteria. I hope that that's useful in space travel in the future because that's. Ultimate low resource environment where you can really see a benefit for taking up like a big tank of sugar, some water, and then maybe like a little catalog of like lots of different bacteria that can make different things and yeast that can sense different things. And then you can pick and choose if you need to make a certain material and grow that material on site. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I kept thinking when I was watching The Martian, like that guy needs our bacteria.
1: Yeah. Who needs potatoes when you could have sugar, water,
2: and bacteria? And you could imagine these individuals in the future mixing and matching in whatever way is suitable to their particular application. So you have, maybe it's co-culture, maybe it's a single type of organism, who knows, but you know the pattern that it is going to create or the function that the material it makes is going to have. You just put together the components.
0: I think people should be interested in engineering Biology to make materials. And because for me, it's like the logical, coolest thing we can do now in synthetic biology. So, over the years, we've managed to build systems that can sense, react to light, produce things, switch on and off at certain times, cells that sense where they are in three dimensions. And uh, frankly, not much of that is very useful for a lot of the applications that people use synthetic biology for in the real world, which is like produce a load of a chemical, right? If you think this kind of stuff like a ginkgo or a zymogen does to get cells to make a product, that's so kind of one-dimensional. And a material is multi-dimensional. So all of these cool tricks and technologies we've developed for synthetic biology, they really make sense to be used for materials because it's really like the next dimension. So that's how I inspire my group to think about our stuff and materials, it's like, if we can crack this, we can use all the cool gizmos and gadgets of synthetic biology.
1: Yeah, I fully agree with that. Great. All right, Tom, Judy, thank you guys both so much for joining me on Journal Club today. And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.